Well, it is the season of gift giving, is it not? And we love to receive gifts. I know I do. There is a certain joy we derive in unwrapping something and trying to figure out what the mystery of that is. I don't know. You probably did this when you were little. Some of you may still do this when you're old, right? Older here, you shake the box to try to figure out what it is. Anybody still do that? Oh, you know you do. You know you do. I know every kid does that, right? We try to figure out what is that, what I wanted, is that there? And I hope you love to give gifts as well. As we said last week, there is a joy that we receive, right? And Jesus himself said that it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. But have you put any thought to why it is that we give gifts? More specifically, why do we give gifts to certain people? And I know we give gifts to all type of people. Why do we give gifts to certain people? And I know that there are times when we give gifts to some out of duty and obligation. Maybe you're like, I feel like I need to give a gift to my manager. I see him every day. Or to certain coworkers, right? Uh, maybe you feel like giving a gift to your kid's teacher because of what they do, and that's a good thing. Some of you maybe have to draw a name from Secret Santa at work. Ah, I hated that, you know? Because oftentimes I draw a name of the person I really didn't like. <laughs> or maybe someone I didn't even know anything about, right? And it's kind of hard to buy a gift for this individual. The hardest gift to buy for someone you don't know anything about is when it's a $10 and under gift, right? Can't find anything. Right, so there are certain gifts we give just because out of obligation. But typically, who is it that we give gifts to? Yeah, we give gifts to people that we love, or like a whole lot, right? But certainly to people that we love. That's typically who we give gifts to. Why? Because we give gifts as a demonstration of our love to that person, right? It's why we work overtime during the holidays. Because we need to buy gifts for our loved ones, for our kids, for our spouse, for our parents, right? We extend ourselves financially, right? Heck, some people go into debt during the holidays, right? Because it's like, we gotta, I got there's so many people I love, and I need to buy gifts for them. I, I, I love my pastor so much, i got to buy something for him. <laughs> right? We say that, right? And so people go into debt, and you shouldn't do that, right? But, but some do, right, during this time. You know, just this past week, I was at lunch uh, with a pastor friend and at a local restaurant, and we got to talking to our server about the Christmas season, and we began to encourage him about, you know, what Christmas means and all of these things. And, and it was funny because he said... He was saying, saying to us, he goes, man, I wish we didn't have to buy so many gifts during the holidays. It gets really expensive, especially this year. Like all of us, right, we've spent a lot this year, more so uh, than at any other time probably. But he's like, I wish we didn't have to spend so much in buying gifts. So I, so I asked him, I was like, well, who, it is that, who is it that you're buying, you know, all these expensive gifts for? I thought he was going to say his girlfriend or a fiance. And he, you know what he said? My mom. Isn't that beautiful? But it's like, man, it's just getting so expensive. But he was buying gifts for mom. But why is he buying gifts for his mom? Because he loves his mom. It's why we give gifts to loved one. It is a display of our love for that individual. And it's why, sadly, many feel really some, some deep mourning and loss and grief during this time because someone that they loved is not there to participate in that receiving and giving of gifts. But as Christians, we celebrate Christmas because we recognize that God is the greatest of gift givers, isn't he? 
No one can outgive God. No one can top God's gift because what have we been given? We have been given the gift of a Savior, His Son, Jesus Christ. And when we think of the birth of our Savior, of His coming into this world, what does that communicate to us but the perfect love of God? In giving us not only the greatest gift that we need because we do, but giving us the greatest gift that brings true lasting joy and peace like nothing else does. As great as it is to receive a gift from a loved one, it's a fleeting thing, isn't it? The, the feeling we felt in receiving that gift in the moment, it, it's over after a while. That, that watch you've been given, all right, after you see it for the hundredth time, it kind of doesn't mean the same thing, as, even though it has sentimental value. But the gift that God gives to us is true, lasting joy, peace, and contentment. So let's turn to John chapter 3. Again, this series titled, weary, The Weary World Rejoices. And, and we've been talking about how this sin-sick world rejoices at the coming of our Lord. Last week, we looked at the hope that that gift brings. And today, we'll look at love for the weary. John chapter 3, a familiar passage to all of us, verses 16 through 21. Hear the words of the living God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, And does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These are the words of the Lord. There is probably no greater love in this world than the love a parent feels for their children. And I know that bond between husband and wife is the strongest thing that there is, but... The love that a mom and dad feels for their kids is something, I believe, otherworldly. There are millions of ways that parents express their love for their children, isn't there? It's not in just buying them gifts, right? But, but in how they protect them and provide for them and care for them and instruct them and correct them, right? Parents, you prove your love to your children over and over again in many ways, and you hope that they kind of recognize that love, right? And I think that they do even if they may not express it all the time. But you're constantly proving your love because love is action, isn't it? Love isn't just things we say to one another. We say we love one another, but it's demonstrated in action, what we do for one another. I remember being a first-time dad, a young father, and seeing a little baby girl and and all of the feelings that that stirs up in you that you never know you could really experience. Like, I would die for my wife. That's, That's a given, but... Uh, when you see that little gift that the Lord brings into your life, right, it just, it does something in you, right? You, like, you do anything for your child. You, you die for your child, right? That's just, it's just, you're overwhelmed with those feelings. I remember saying something I believe every dad says when they see their kids, right? You give your life for her. I, w- I want her to know how much I love her. 
I've even thought, man, if I could give the world to my daughter, I, I would gladly do it because I love her so much. And I think every parent here feels the same way. And if you don't, well, that's your kid's fault. No. <laughs> it wasn't perfect like my, my child. So I especially grip when reading this probably the most familiar verse in the Bible, right? Even unbelievers know this verse, right? Uh, For God so loved the world. Think about that for a moment. For God so loved the world. And while I would say, I, if I could, I would give my child the world because I love her so much, God says the opposite of that. He says, and he said, I will give my son to the world as a display of my great love. Completely the opposite. And it's what I want us to remember as we celebrate and reflect on the birth of our Savior. That God's gift of his son is a gift of love like nothing else. And he gave that gift of his love not to anyone who was deserving of that gift. Not to anyone who was even looking for that gift. We call it a gift precisely because it is unearned, undeserved, unmerited, and unlooked for. And I want us to look at this familiar passage today. And I pray that we would marvel at the range of God's love expressed in this familiar verse. That we would understand clearly who is is exactly the recipient of God's magnanimous love And that you and I here would really contemplate how we are to respond to this gift of love today. That we would gain a greater appreciation as we worship through this Advent season. At how marvelous and glorious the gift of his son truly is. As an expression and display of God's great love for this weary world. So let's look at this first. Consider the range, the extent, if you will... Of God's love for the weary, sin-sick world as demonstrated by this great gift. One could say that the quality and costliness of a gift expresses how much one loves a person, right? Those you really love, you kind of spend a little more on them. I would hope you would spend for your husband or wife or your child more than you spend for a coworker. I really do, Right? Because there's like a difference in the way you love those particular people in your life. The gifts I give my wife and give my daughter are of greater cost than I typically would give anyone else in my life. Now, all of us, I think, know what it feels like to, at some point in our life, receive what we would consider to be the perfect gift. Anyone can think of a time where they've probably said, you know, this was the perfect gift that someone gave to me. It was thoughtful. It was considerate. It was extraordinarily generous. Like it blew us away that this person would give us this gift that like we knew they put in great effort to get us this gift, right? It wasn't just a gift card, right? (laughs) Or just a card in general, right? They put some thought into this gift. Like they understood me to get this for me and, and, and to receive this gift, like I felt deeply loved. Hopefully you've given those kind of gifts as well to others, right? And this is why this passage is so glorious. 
Because it reflects how God has given to us the perfect gift. And what gift could possibly express the extent, the range of the way God loves you? What gift could possibly display that? It tells us very clearly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. God gave his only son. Volumes have been written about the perfect harmonious love that exists and flows in the triune Godhead. We couldn't even fathom what that is. We have a taste of it in in how we experience some love here on earth in in a wholly imperfect way. But the kind of love that exists in the triune Godhead is something that we can't even begin to comprehend. John writes in his letter in 1 John 4, 6, he says, God is love. Notice he doesn't say God has love. He doesn't say that God possesses love like we would say that we possess love or have the capacity to uh, love someone else. He says God is love. It is the very essence of his being. It is at the core of his being. He is love. He cannot not love. Therefore, he cannot be unloving in any way, shape, or form. We know what it is to be unloving and to be on the receiving end of something that is not love. But that is not something that could be said about God. It's at the core of his being. So what has God, Father, Son, and Spirit been doing for all eternity? What have they been doing for all eternity? Being exactly what God is, loving. A love that flows, a harmonious and perfect love amongst the persons of the Godhead. What we know from Scripture is that the Father has eternally loved the Son and the Spirit. And the Son has eternally loved the Father and the Spirit and the Spirit eternally loving the Father and the Son. And we can't even begin to wrap our puny little finite minds around that. And we know that that love that flows among the Godhead who is love spills out into creation. It is why God made. It is why he created us so that you and I could share in that love that has always, forever, and eternally existed. When we consider Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17 for his disciples, I want us to just for a moment read through a portion of this and get a glimpse for how Jesus expresses the love he has for the Father and the Father that the love has for the Son and how he wants us, his disciples, to share in that love. Verses 23 through 26 of John 17. I in them, Jesus prays, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Can you even comprehend for a moment how much If you are in Christ, how much God loves you. Jesus is saying that you love them as much as you love me. How much does the Father love the Son? I don't even know what that is. And he's saying that's how much the Father loves us who are in him. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, 
He goes, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Isn't that amazing? This is what Jesus is praying for us. God has revealed himself as a loving father who delights in his son, having perfectly loved him from all eternity. And Jesus here is praying that those whom the Father has given to him would experience that same love with which the Father has loved the Son. And that that same love would be in them. That's why a Christian who is unloving, there's something wrong with that individual. It's really hard to even say that they're a Christian. Because Jesus is saying that that same way the Father has loved me, those that are in me are going to experience that same kind of love. And they're going to love one another as the Father has loved me. In fact, Jesus took great pains to teach and show his disciples the love of the Father. That's why he kept saying over and over again, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The way I love you, the, the only reason I'm doing that is because that's how the Father has loved me. Love can only be truly comprehended by the love of God in and for himself and the love the Father has for the Son. Jesus came to reveal that to us. And it is precisely because of this great love the Father has for the Son that this gift is so astounding, so shocking, and so absolutely stunning. What did the Father give if not what was most precious to Him? What He most delighted in? His Son. If you considered what the birth of Christ signifies in God giving his son and how it demonstrates his great love for us. I don't know that we spend enough time thinking about this. What did God give in giving his son? I'm just going to give you a few things. God gave his son to enter into this broken world to share in our humanity. God gave His Son to be born in the likeness of human flesh, born of a virgin in complete obscurity in the lowliness of a manger. God gave His Son to bear our human weakness and frailties. He gave His Son to be born of a virgin in complete obscurity to taste the heights and depths of humanity. He gave His Son to experience our sorrow, to experience our pain and suffering. God gave His Son to know hunger and thirst, sweat and toil, to know the full range of human emotion, joy and anger, sadness, grief, loss and agony of soul. God gave His Son to scorn, to ridicule by the religious leaders. God gave His Son to be beaten mercilessly, whipped and brutalized. He gave His Son to barbaric cruelty at the cross. God gave His Son to the agony of pain, of of nails being driven through His hands and feet. He gave His Son to bear our sin. Think about this. The one loved from all eternity whom Scripture says knew no sin was made sin so that you and I could know the righteousness and become the righteousness of God. God gave His Son to redeem us and secure our pardon and freedom through the shedding 
of his blood. God gave his son to death and to the grave. God gave his only son. How much did God love us? How much did he love us? This is the range of God's love, the extent of God's love, this great dimension of God's love that you and I need to continually worship him for and recognize him for. for. It's not just a little baby lying in a manger. The demonstration of the love of God and expression and display of the love of God that you and I cannot fathom because of the immeasurable priceless gift given to us. John writes this in 1 John 4, 9 and 10. In this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. No greater gift could be given to demonstrate the love of God than in the giving of his beloved son. Secondly, I want us to see the costliness of this gift. How this great expression of love shown by the father, you and I need to ask the question, to whom was the gift directed? To whom was this great gift directed? Who are the recipients of this glorious gift? Well, he tells us, doesn't it? For God so loved the world. The world is the object of the love of God in the giving of the gift of his son. Now, I want to address a few things concerning this passage because it is familiar to us. Sadly, it is one of the passages that is greatly misunderstood, misapplied, mischaracterized, misinterpreted. When you and I hear the term world, our mind usually goes to thinking of the material world, the earth, the fullness of the earth. And more specifically, in the context of a passage like this, we begin to think of all of the people of the world, right? All the people in the world. Because we we see this, you know, as a numerical concept. He's talking about every single person in the whole world that has existed for all of time from Adam till the return of Jesus Christ, right? We think of it in these particular terms. Not a wrong way for us to understand the world, but we need to understand the world as John means for us to understand the world. Because in John's thinking here, he's not thinking of it the same way, right? Because if we look at it as the world as Every single person, and it's saying here, God so loved every single person in the world in the same way, then we would kind of interpret this passage as God loved the entire human race that he gave his son. The problem is that we're going to run into some challenges there, because that would imply that Christ's work would extend to every single person that ever was and ever will be, that all are saved without distinction. And we could fall into the heresy of universalism in in that capacity. That Christ's atoning work, the extent of it is for every single person, so all are saved. Well, you and I know that that's not true. Not all are saved. We, We wish they were. It is the longing in the heart of God that all would be, but we know that is not the case. John in his gospel and in his other letter in 1 John uses the term world to mean something very specific. Okay? 
He has an intention with that world. The Greek word cosmos, okay? Yes, it can mean the material world, but in John's gospel, it has another, it has another context here. What he means to convey by the word or the term world is the mass of humanity that is in rebellion against God. The mass of humanity that has rejected God. For John, it's not a numerical concept. It is a moral and ethical concept. And I'm going to give you the use of this word, world, this term world, in other parts of John so you could see that that's what he intends to imply by it. John chapter 1, right? In the opening chapter, 9 and 10, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He cannot be referring to world as the material world not knowing him, in terms of the creation of the planet. He's referring to a certain type of people, right? John chapter 3, 19, the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The people of the world, this world that is in rebellion against God, love the darkness rather than the light. John 7, 7, the world cannot hate you, Jesus tells his disciples, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil, okay? John 15, 18, and 19, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, well, wait a minute, aren't we in the world? Yes, we are in the material world, but he is separating us, right? He's drawing a distinction between those who are of the world and those who are not of this world or out of this world, not of this world, right? These are those who belong to Christ. He says, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Who is the world in John's understanding and John's implication here? Well, it's those, he writes in that passage we've read today, those who stand condemned and under the wrath of God, who love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. This is the world. God so loved the world This aspect of the world, this class of people in the world, the the mass of humanity, that is in rebellion to God. Now, aren't you saying that is the whole of humanity? It is. But in the context of what John is writing here, he's talking about moral and ethical considerations here. This mass of people who are in rebellion to God. That's the world. And this is why it's shocking and astounding and stunning. Because John is saying... That this very kind of people are the recipients of God's scandalous love. Not deservedly loving people, but rather undeserving, unlovely people. God loves such a world that he gave his son for us. Now, I don't know about you, but we don't tend to give gifts to people who hate us. We don't tend to buy gifts or spend a lot of money on people who are openly hostile and antagonistic towards us. Do we do that? No, we don't do that. But that's exactly what John is saying that God did. That's marvelous, isn't it? He loves us not because we were lovely. He loves us not because we are amazing, awesome, and wonderful people. 
No, on the contrary, right? There is absolutely nothing in you or I that would compel God to love us in such a way that he would give his only son. And this is why Christmas is cause for great rejoicing and that the love of God was displayed by the great gift that God, gift that God has given the weary world. This great and glorious gift of Christ his son given to a world filled with hell-bent rebels like you and like me. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, 6 through 8, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let that sink in for a moment. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. That's the love of God, brothers and sisters, like nothing else. We weren't looking for Him. We weren't seeking after Him. We didn't even love God. No, Scripture says we hated God. We were enemies of God. We were in open warfare. We're like, not you, God. We want to be God. We don't want you on the throne. We want to be on the throne. While we were weak in our sin, he sent his son. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christmas Christmas means love for the weary because guess what? God sees and knows us exactly as we are. God knows the truth about us. And I know some of us engage in some reputation management in our life, right? We, we want to portray this great sanitized life of how pure and holy and how perfect we are. And God goes, <laughs> I know what you really are. I know you better than you know yourself. I see that wicked heart. I see your sinfulness. I see what nobody else sees and what nobody else knows about you. He knows the complete truth about us. Our sinfulness, our ugliness, our darkness, our rebellion. And guess what he does? He extends this gift of his son to us. What a precious and priceless gift has been given. His only son. That's true love. That's true love. The love that entered the world on that first Christmas day. A baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, entering our human existence to display the great and unrivaled love of God for the weary world. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to such a gift, to the greatest gift ever given? Well, we continue. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What is the only right response to this great gift, but to believe in the Son, to believe in Christ, to place our trust and faith in him and him alone? This love of God manifested in Jesus Christ is yours, but you need to take by faith in him. Now, I say this passage is misunderstood because... Sometimes we read Scripture, right? We pluck Scriptures out, right? And Scriptures are all in a context. And, and this one is in as well. 
Because I want you to take note of something here. Let's read it again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This passage is connected to what just came before it. How do I know that? Well, a challenge in our Bibles is that we have these sections of passages that have these subheadings, right? And we tend to look at those subheadings as just kind of standalone things. But how many of you know that, right, the source documents here did not contain verses, there's no numerical verses, right? There was no subheadings. It was just one long document, right? right? And we're used to writing things, and we have indentations, and we skip a space in between paragraphs, or we use titles and headings just like this. But that John's gospel was not written that way, okay? Um, so, again, this is why we want to be good students of God's word, and we want to understand these particular things. Notice that little word, for. At the beginning of verse 16. That's called a conjunction. What do conjunctions tell us? This is a connecting thought. It's connected to what has just come before it, right? And, and that's why we need to see this. It's connected to the previous thought. What is chapter 3 about as we understand chapter 3? It is the narrative of Jesus' discourse with a particular man by the name of Nicodemus who we're told is a Pharisee, who was one of the religious leaders. And this Pharisee approaches Jesus. Now, he was really intrigued by Jesus. He wanted to know about Jesus, but he was afraid. He was a religious leader, and he comes to Jesus at night. And he has a discussion with Jesus, and Jesus reveals to him something very shocking to Nicodemus. He tells him that he needs to experience a new birth in order to even enter or see the kingdom of heaven. Now, that would have been shocking for a Jew for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is that every believing Jew would know that they were sons of Abraham, descendants of Abraham. They're heirs of the covenant. That's theirs by birthright. And Jesus is saying, no, no, it's a new birth that you've got to experience in order to have that. Something else needs to happen. Nicodemus was probably no doubt a very pious man, certainly a law keeper. He was a Pharisee. They prided, prided, prided themselves in, in obeying all of the, the traditions and the law of God. And Jesus is saying, no, no, Nicodemus, you've got it wrong. It's not by birthright. You actually need to be born again. Experience a new birth in order to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, most Jews believe that, obviously, they were the heirs of the promise, um, and that a lot of them had forgotten that salvation really wasn't only for the Jews. It was to extend to the Gentiles. And most of them had forgotten that by this time. Right? But here comes Jesus saying, no, you've got to be born again. Jesus says not only, that it's not those who have that birthright, but only those who believe in the Son who will have eternal life. So let's look at verse 14 and 15, these two preceding verses to uh, chapter, uh, verse 16 there. John 3, 14 and 15. Jesus says to Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, if you're not familiar with that story of what he's talking about here, read Numbers 21. Right? You'll, you'll read the story and the account uh, of what's taking place there and why Jesus references this, this particular 
story that Nicodemus would have been very, very familiar with, right? What we find in Numbers 21 is Israel is doing what Israel does, rebelling, sinning, murmuring, and complaining. In fact, it tells us there that just a great complaint arose among the Israelites, right? complaining about Moses and complaining about God. If you recall, after God delivered them, you know, out of bondage in Egypt, right? And he's, he takes them through all these things in the wilderness. And they're like, oh, I wish we could go back. We had, you know, Coke. We had Chick-fil-A. And we had, you know, steaks and ribeyes and all of these things. And now, what are we doing? Right? We don't even have water. It's, a, the, it's the story of murmuring and complaining. So as punishment, guess what God, God does? He sends fiery serpents to go out. And bite those complainers. And it tells us that many of them died. Now some of you parents might be thinking. Well my kid's complaining. That might be a good recourse there. Let a few serpents loose in the house. Right? But it's punishment. Right? And many of them died. And they recognize the error of their ways. And repent. And it says that they were sorrowful for having complained. Right? And, And so the Lord tells Moses how to remedy the situation. He tells Moses to fashion a serpent, attach it to a pole, and lift that pole up on high. And everyone who looks at that, when they see it, if they've been bitten, they will not die, they will live. That's the story. And so Moses fashions one out of bronze, and the people who were bitten were saved by looking at this serpent that had been lifted up. So Jesus now is drawing a parallel with that story. Okay, because that story is a type and shadow of Christ and his work. So that's why that conjunction is there. It's linking those two ideas, those two uh, thoughts there. But we also have another little word in that verse 16, and that is the word so. It's an adverb, okay, for God so. Now, many times people understand this to mean that God for God so greatly loved the world. We, we attach that so to love to think about it as something of a great quantity. Like this is about the ample, you know, large, roomy love of God for the world. But, but that's not exactly what it means. Okay? That word so, that adverb means in the way indicated or in this way. Okay? In this way. All right? Again, a parallel is being made between this this account of Moses, right, and the lifted up servant, and Jesus, who would also be lifted up, the Son of Man, right? He was lifted up when? On the cross, and he was lifted up when again? His resurrection, and then ultimately in his ascension, right? And that's the parallel here, saying just like those who fixed their gaze on the uplifted serpent and lived... Those who gaze upon the uplifted Christ will also live. So let me just render a little paraphrase here of verse 15 and 16. Because it can be paraphrased this way. Just like Moses lifted up the serpent, and those who had rebelled and were bitten looked upon it and lived, the Son of Man must also be lifted up so that whoever looks, and we'll use that looks as believes, on him will have eternal life. God loved the world in the same way. He gave his son so that whoever believes in him will not die but have eternal life. 
In the same way, God provided a remedy with a lifted up serpent so that they would gaze upon it and live. God has also loved the world in this manner, in the same way, by providing his son who will be lifted up so that whoever looks upon him, believes on him, will have eternal life, will live. That's the point he's making in this passage, which again is profound to me. Why? What, is, what are we even talking about? Who are the recipients of this love? People who don't deserve it. Did those Israelites deserve salvation in the wilderness? God had every right to smite them for their rebellion and their complaining and their murmuring and their bickering and their idolatry constantly. But God provides a remedy. And this is what he did with us. You and I have all been bitten by sin. All of us are deserving of death. In fact, that's our natural spiritual state. We're dead in our trespass and sins. We are already condemned. Isn't it fascinating in the passage we read here? He writes that God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. Could he have condemned the world? Yeah, absolutely. Why didn't he need to condemn the world at his coming? Because the world already stands condemned. We all stand condemned. We are all hell-bent sinners, rebels. We are condemned already. We've done that to ourself. Those who do not believe in Christ are already condemned. Those who die apart from Christ who don't trust in him are condemned. And this is why John 3.16 cannot mean that God greatly loves everyone in the world in the same way. But rather that he demonstrates his love to the undeserving world in this way. By giving his son. And everyone who looks to him, who believes in him, will have eternal life. Those who don't are condemned already. Those who have trusted and believed in him have true and lasting life question to you is, have you received that gift? What have you done with that gift? How have you responded to this gift of love? Have you looked to Christ? Have you believed on him, trusted in him, placed your faith in him? Have you come to the light? There's no other light. I know the world thinks like they have the light. The world thinks that it's smart. The world thinks that they have the corner on wisdom and truth. But Jesus says they're in darkness. And not only are they in darkness, they love the darkness. The world who's openly hostile to anything having to do with God, who's an enemy of God, loves the darkness. That's what condemns them. Have you received the gift? Have you come to the light? If you have, you have received the greatest gift ever given. 1 John 3, 1, John writes in his other letters, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Look at this. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. If you receive that gift, you are a child of God. What is it to be called a child of God? A child of our Heavenly Father. You know what you do for your kids. You know how much you love for your kids, and that pales in comparison to the love Jesus has for those that are his children. 
that those that he calls children because of what Christ has done for them, because they've received this gift. We are now God's children. So we know the love of the Father. We know the love of Christ. And now we can reflect that love one to another. In fact, John writes in that letter, this is how you know you have the love of God, if you have love for one another. How can you know if you've received the love of the Father, if you've received this gift? Well, do you love God's people? If you don't love God's people, you have to question if you have the love of the Father in you, if you're even a child of God. Because the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, sons and daughters of God. Without the Spirit, we cannot be called the children of God. Do you love God's people? And how does that love manifest itself? How do you display that love? How do we display that love one to another? It's a demonstration, a reflection of the love of God that is in us. That's the kind of love the world is seeking after, brothers and sisters. Now, our world seeks for love in all the wrong places, in all the wrong things, in all the wrong relationships. But there's a hunger and thirst in the human soul to experience true, lasting satisfaction, true, lasting joy in the kind of love that only God can provide because it is who He is at the very core of His being. And only His children can actually experience and taste and know what that kind of love is. So you and I have a job. To demonstrate and reflect that love, not just to one another, but to the world. Does the world know that we have the love of the Father? Does the world, can they even say there's something different about them? Oh, I still hate them because they hate the light. Jesus said it himself, if the world hates you, listen, they hated me first, okay? You don't get any dibs on that. Jesus says they hated me first, they're going to hate you also. But man, they should see something different in us. Our love is not like the love of the world. We have something far greater and far different because of that. True love is found only in the greatest of all gifts, the Son of God. So I implore you today to receive of that grace gift that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And this Christmas, this Advent season, worship Him for that great love that He's shown for you and me by giving us the greatest gift as a demonstration of his great love for us.